welcome to the Smarkets Politics Podcast, Episode 7, and yet our third Prime Minister here in the UK. We're going to talk about that and Rishi Sunak's taking over at number 10 and how that's affected the markets. We'll also be looking ahead to the second round of the Brazilian election coming up this Sunday, and of course the US midterms, which are next week. And we've also got a special guest alongside my regulars, Matthew Shaddock and Patrick Finn. We've got Matt Singh from Number Cruncher Politics on the line. Uh, we're going to start, though, here in the studio with Patrick, because, Patrick, you're going to tell us about Rishi Sunak's entry into number 10 and what that means for the markets we've got on when he might leave, how things will go over the next few months. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, so there's a 24% chance that Sunak leaves his post by the end of next year, which, interestingly, is around the same position that Truss was in when she first took office, despite... Sunak's much stronger position with the Parliamentary Conservative Party. Um, so I thought that was interesting why the market isn't any more confident about his chances of lasting than it was when Trust became PM. And, and similarly, in terms of the next leader market, not a lot has changed. Um, and this is probably because Sunak hasn't made a lot of changes to the top team, nor are these like internal Tory divisions just suddenly resolved. Um, so just giving an example, like the top four in the market after Trust took over were Kwasi Kwarteng, Kemi Bednok, Boris Johnson, and Penny Mordaunt. Now, Kwarteng's career in high office is finished, but the other three are actually still the top three in the next Tory leader market after Rishi Sunak. Um, so, I mean, I guess from the market perspective, at least, this feels like a reset for the Tories, a chance to kind of redo the last two months, but it's not considered a breakthrough moment or any radical break with the past. Um, so yeah, I suspect we might start seeing some labor leads maybe in the in the high teens rather than the high 20s and 30s, but not any, you know, poll leads for the Tories just yet. Okay, uh, first chance to bring you in, Matt Singh. Um, we've seen a lot, and kind of Patrick alluded to it, there's been this sort of huge lead for the for the Labour Party, sort of a lead that some people are calling a kind of existential threat to the Tories if there were a general election right now. Um, how likely it is do you think that the Tories recover some of that kind of polling deficit and that they recover? It's a very good question. And there are not a huge amount of um, historical precedents to go on. Obviously, leaders have been changed in, in, in midterm, but to have two changes of, of um, not just party leadership, but prime minister um, in such short succession, um, and also the, the the scale and speed of the polling move against the Conservatives um, after the mini budget um, really puts us in quite a unique situation. So we've had one poll, that voting intention poll, after um, done completely after Rishi Sunak took over as Prime Minister. That was uh, YouGov for today's Times, um, and that showed it had previously shown a thirty-seven point Labour lead. That's now down to a 28-point Labour lead. Now, that's not a huge bounce if that's all it is, but given all of the, the things I just mentioned, it's, it's quite possible that there's more to come. It takes uh, longer for the effect of the last few weeks on the Conservatives and in particular on their brand to wear off and for them to recover. Uh, certainly Sunak's personal numbers relative to Starmer don't look too bad. He's behind, but not... Um, massively so. And of course, this is the point at which uh, governing parties in sort of the third year of the parliament where the governing parties are usually at their least popular. So there are, and, and of course, the, the other thing to remember is that this has been probably the most volatile uh, parliament in terms of voting intention um, that I can remember. It was only sort of 
three, four years ago that we were talking about how stable the polls were. This poll, we've had 30 plus point leads and vote shares in the mid 50s for both main parties at different times. Um, now, I'm quite sure that the next general election is going to end up somewhere, <laughs> very much somewhere between the two. Um, but where exactly is is hard to say. I mean, the question really is whether um, the conservative brand is so damaged by the, the events of the last few weeks, um, combined with the costs of, of governing. And bear in mind, they have been in for... Uh, 12 years now, and it will probably be 14, I would think, by the time that there's um, there's another general election. Um, and so, yeah, they will um, they 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 will find it difficult to claw back uh, the ground that they've lost. But it's not impossible. We don't know what's going to happen um, with, for example, the the economy or. Um, Ukraine, for example, which which would lead on to the economy, and there are still, I mean, despite Labour's huge lead, it does have some brand problems of its own, which might be exposed if they come up uh, against a governing party that the or government that the public view is more more competent and more palatable. So mm. um, it is quite hard to say. I mean, I guess you would say the likeliest outcome at this point is that they don't claw it all back, but there's a very wide. Uh, uncertainty around that. I feel like I've said that a lot over the last few years, but but I, I think right now it is very much justified. Yeah, I mean, two years is a very long time in politics these days, I guess, is, is what we have to hold in mind. Um, Matthew, obviously, we're talking about two years' time, a general election will need to be called in that period of time. It hasn't haven't happened before. But how plausible is it, do you think, that there is an election next year? And Because that would probably be a lot riskier for the, for the Conservatives. Yeah, I mean, the odds have been creeping up. I think right now I was saying about a 25% chance of a 2023 general election. I did um, give this a bit of thought the other day. I, I mean, I think I'd be a seller rather than a buyer at that rate. I guess there's two broad ranges of possibilities here. Either the Tories claw back an enormous amount of this poll lead, so they're close to even or perhaps ahead. Now, as Matt says, that's, that's a big lead and it's probably quite unlucky to, unlikely to happen within 12 months. Um, so I don't think we can get to a situation, well, maybe I'll allocate a 10% chance that Tories are in a position where they think they can win and therefore gamble on an early election. I suppose the other range of possibilities is things are going so badly, changing leaders may, need, may not be an option, given they've already changed it twice in this parliament already. And perhaps they run into some huge parliamentary mess, they lose a vote of no confidence, the only way out of the situation is an early general election. Theoretically, that's possible. Not many historical examples of governments being doing that. So I'm going to say that's about a 5% chance. So in my head, about a 15% chance of an election next year, 25% selling markets, therefore I'm selling. Okay, so there's another tip, an early tip from Matthew Shaddock. Um, Matt, we'll come back to you down the line. Um, we obviously didn't have a contest in the end that went to the, went to the members, uh, Penny Mordaunt pulling out just before the, the kind of deadline. Um, if it had been Boris Johnson up against Rishi Sunak in that membership vote, uh, who do you think would have won that? Well, we'll never know for certain, um, but we do have some good clues from uh, a poll of the, the Conservative members that YouGov did. Uh, this was just before the um, leadership election was actually called from Liz Truss announcing her resignation. So it was hypothetical, although I guess given the circumstances, it was perhaps 
less hypothetical than, than might normally be the case. Um, they did not, unfortunately, ask um, the head-to-heads or at least didn't publish them. Um, so we, we can't answer the question directly. They did ask um, first preferences across uh, a, a range of candidates. Um, now, on that question, Boris Johnson got 32%, Rishi Sunak 23% um, of first preferences. Obviously, the problem with that is that 40-odd percent went to other people. We don't know how the lower preferences um, would have broken if that had uh, been the head-to-head. But they did ask about whether they felt people would be um, a a good choice or a bad choice, or I I can't remember the exact word, but they asked people to rate the candidates individually. And uh, on that, Boris Johnson had 63% um, saying that he would be good, uh, Rishi Sunak 60%. Um, and I think Penny Morden was in the mid-50s and the others somewhat lower. So I think between those two pieces of data, we can conclude that Boris Johnson probably would have won, but I think it would have been relatively close. Okay, yeah, very I'm, interesting. I'm, I'm with Matt on this. I mean, I'm a bit sad that we didn't get that runoff, just from a sort of I'm professional sure point of view. It would have been <laughs> an amazing market for a week. But, um, yeah, I think everyone had assumed, a lot of the media commentary was, Boris will win with the members. And I'm with Matt, I think it would have been close because I think the effect of having a MP's indicative vote where Sunak would have been at least two to one ahead of Johnson based on what we know, perhaps further, that would have um, played a part. I think that would have changed a few people's minds. And don't forget, Sunak got 43% in the last one in the summer. Mm -hmm. Um, And his standing has obviously risen since then because his predictions about what would happen if trust took over proved very prescient. Um, so I don't think there's any reason to think he wouldn't have got very close to 50%, if not above. Yeah, interesting. I mean, 43%, but he was, you know, obviously up against Truss. The yeah, idea being different. that Johnson is, yeah. is more popular, supposedly more popular yes. with the membership. Um, but yeah, very interesting. And kind of thing perhaps that you might have been able to model quite well, Patrick. Yeah. Um, well, actually, just, just on what Matt said, Matt Singh, um, I've got two months on today. Um, the, like, leadership approval ratings between Trust and Sunak were quite a good predictor of what the kind of headline head-to-head figures were. So that kind of difference, if it was like plus four to Johnson or whatever, is probably a good indication of what the poll margins might have shown. But whether the polls were, would have actually been accurate is a different question. Okay, very the, interesting. That is a good point, actually, because in the, I mean, in the, in the uh, first leadership contest, the polls were off by margin that, I mean, in the event, didn't actually change the outcome or even yeah. come close to. But in normal circumstances, that would be a big miss. And if you think it's going to be closer, then that would be... I don't know if you got, if they didn't say if they changed any methodology or anything, but uh, I think that's quite relevant. I really wish somebody would run a retrospective poll of members and say, how would you have voted if this had happened? Uh, yeah, that would be interesting. Um, <laughs> not, no, no, we, we don't do um, party members polling ourselves, but uh, there are a few people who do, so that yeah. uh, that would be interesting. Okay, gents. Well, yeah, yeah, very interesting, but for now, hypothetical. But we can move on to the US, and we have another kind of um, divergence between the polls and the betting markets, really, and it's a good place to kind of discuss that. We'll start with you, Patrick, as well on this. Um, again, we've got a lot of the kind of poll-based forecasters, those who build those models, saying that, the Democrats are very likely to take the Senate. Um, the betting market's saying the opposite. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, just to clarify that, like the poll-based forecasters are a little bit more cautious on the Democrats at the moment. So 538 is putting the Democrats at 54% chance of holding the Senate. Okay. So it's come in. Yes. Yeah. I'm on the old numbers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Smarket is giving the Democrats a 
35% chance. Um, yeah, I just recall Nate Silver writing an article about 10 days ago about how the betting markets were being too confident on the Republicans. But now it seems like the markets picked up on this kind of democratic slump that's been happening before the poll aggregators did. But I mean, that could just be could be could just be a coincidence. Um, I mean, I, it's kind of hard to say which one is more reliable because we don't have like a lot of evidence to say either way. But there is some anecdotal evidence of the markets outperforming the polls in the US presidential election, the last UK election and the local elections this year, we did quite well as markets. Um, but I think the one key advantage the markets have for all the flaws of markets is immediacy. So markets can pick up on big campaign moments in real time if there's a big event. Um, so the markets will respond in real time, whereas getting a new poll can take two or three days. And even then, you're not sure if it's just noise in the data until you get a few more polls as well, which could take another few days after that. Um, and probably perfect timing for this podcast, there was what may come to be seen as a major event in the Pennsylvania Senate race just a couple of days ago with a, a debate between the two Senate candidates. Um I mean, usually these kind of debates are just run-of-the-mill occurrences and don't have any major impact on the race, but many commentators are suggesting that Senate control could hinge on this particular particular race. Um, I think Matthew's been looking at... Yeah, you, you talked about this last week, didn't you? It was John Fetterman against Dr. Mehmet Oz. And, you know, how has that, how has that kind of affected the market, that debate? Yeah, I mean, Patrick's saying the advantage of betting markets is they can just react quicker, which is mm -hmm. true, but also they can be a bit forward-looking. And so we knew this debate was happening... John Fetterman, the Democratic, Democratic candidate, is recovering from a stroke, and so most people had assumed he would struggle in this debate. Did somewhat, I guess, by most people's um, estimates. And so the markets could build that in. We're going to have a debate. This is probably going to be bad for the Democrats. Therefore, we're going to adjust their expectations. And, of course, polls and forecasts are mainly, if not exclusively, backward-looking. Um, so we've got this interesting situation where Fetterman has led in almost every single poll, with maybe one exception, uh, and yet... Dr. Oz, the Republican candidate, is the fairly strong betting market candidate. So it's quite a nice um, contrast case study in how these things can change. John Fetterman kind of led in our market from kind of May until about a week ago. Yep. Okay. Um, I'll throw it over to you, Matt. Um, is there something about the US polling there that you think is um, kind of mirrors this situation we have in the UK, where sometimes there's a, you know, that contrast between the betting markets and the, and the, and the polling aggregates? in a kind of more generic way? Well, it's interesting. In the US, they, there has not traditionally been um, a, a directional bias, a consistent directional bias in, in polling. Um, I remember um, Five Thirty had this thing a few years ago where they, they looked at it over uh, multiple cycles. And on that, if you average across all of them, it ended up being basically nothing. There, there was nothing like the consistent sort of um, being skewed towards Labour like we had in the UK up until really until the last decade when it sort of evened out um, a lot more. Um, so that's the that's how it's traditionally been. Um, I mean, the first thing to say about the difference between the, 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 the poll-based models um, and the, the market-implied probabilities now is that they're perhaps not that di as different as they might look. 
Um, so certainly on the, the Pennsylvania Senate that um, uh, that Patrick was uh, talking about, the so it's five thirty eight model last night had sixty uh, forty uh, in favour of the Democrats. I think yours uh, your prices are actually not quite even sixty forty for the Republicans. I think it's come in slightly um, since then. I mean that is really when when we've got a race as close as this, that's the difference between a one and a half point Democratic lead and a one and a half point Republican lead. In terms of polling error or possible polling changes between now and, and and the vote, we're not actually talking about that big a difference. And I, out of interest, I looked at the um, the national generic house um, votes and, and it looks like that's not something um, specific to Pennsylvania because in the, um, for the house, the 538 poll based model has got about 80% um, chance for the Republicans, and I think uh, the market prices are just somewhere under ninety percent. Um, so it's it's not something unique to Pennsylvania. I mean, in terms of other markets possibly anticipating um, the polls being skewed to the left and the Republicans doing better, possibly we've had, um, as I said, in, traditionally there hasn't been a, a consistent directional bias, um, but we've now had two presidential elections in a row where. Um, to a small extent nationally and certainly in the swing states, um, the Republicans or Trump specifically has ended up doing better than the polls said he would in those places. So, I mean, I'm not sure if I would assume that's going to happen again, but I mean, I guess if you're building in some probability of that, then, um, then you would say possibly you'd expect the Republicans to do a bit better. Um, and that's what some people may be building in. I don't personally have a strong view on that at that point, but I think that might be what's happening. Yeah, we had a not dissimilar thing happen in Brazil. Um, you know, Lula going into that first round with a, a very big poll lead, uh, heavily tipped by Matthew. Um, but the, the actual kind of first round results were a lot closer than we anticipated. Um, Patrick, we've got that kind of second round, that runoff coming up on Sunday. Uh, it's Lula, of course, up against the incumbent Bolsonaro. Um, now got a kind of clearer sense of what the market's saying about that second round. Yeah. It has moved around a fair bit in the last Yeah, it has actually. Um, It's currently at a 67% chance of a Lula win. Um, The market seemed to move massively in Bolsonaro's favour last week, and I'm not sure there was any particular reason why. Um, So there was actually a point where I thought Bolsonaro was about to go favourite. I think at its peak, he was at 47%. Um, but that's now come back towards Lula, putting him at about a two in three chance. Um, I saw someone point out on Twitter that it might be because the English language Wikipedia page hadn't updated the polls recently <laughs> and it looked like Bolsonaro was doing better than he actually was. Um, but yeah, just on the polls, like they have, since the first round at least, they've moved in Bolsonaro's favor by about one or two points, but they do seem to have stabilized at the moment. Um, so I think at the moment we're probably looking at something like fifty-two forty-eight to Lula on average. Okay. Um, and Matt, coming back to you, a kind of similar question to the last one. You know, is there is there a kind of consistent skewing that we see in Brazilian polling? Yeah, in Brazil, unlike the US, there is um, a relatively consistent historical skew for the left to underperform its polls, and that was the same when they were up against um, the, the the main composition was from the centre right, and it's it's the same now um, against Bolsonaro. Um, I mean, the, the, some of the Brazilian polls do seem bolsters do seem to be blaming uh, late swing in the first round, so that 
would um, explain the polls for the second rounds also coming in. Um, whether it's that or it's some other kind of um, skew in the polling that's then been corrected by waiting it to the to the first round result, I'm I'm not sure. Um, you would imagine that the second round would be polls would be more accurate um, than the first round polls, given that they've got this. Even if they're not waiting to it, they've at least got this this benchmark. Um, but again, as Patrick said, the, the, it's about a four point lead um, for Lula in most of these polling averages, and the polls would not have to be very wrong, or things would not have to move very much um, for him to lose. Um, again, sixty, I think sixty seven percent probability was the last uh, market price I saw. I mean, that's not over. I mean, that's uh, that's lower probability than a penalty being scored in football, right? So it's kind <laughs> of like. I mean, it kind of it sixty seven percent may sound like a, a, a high probability, but it's not it's not anywhere near a sort of a, a, a shoe in. Um, I, I haven't. I would need to look more closely at the data to decide, you know, whether whether that's consistent with um, with with what the polls are showing, given the possibility of your bias. Um, but yeah, I, I, I certainly would not be. Um, I would not be touching that market, that sort of race lightly uh, at the moment. You need to need to have a look. Yeah, I mean, I think Brazil and the US markets are exhibiting something which we've talked about before, which is I think a lot of political gamblers look at pretty much any election, any set of polls, and assume that you'll probably make money by assuming the rights will do better than the polls suggest. Mm-hmm. Some international evidence that this has happened sometimes doesn't always happen. And my personal approach is that I think the markets always or quite often overstate that possibility, which is why I often find myself backing left-wing candidates in lots of elections, because I'm kind of assuming that they've overrated. In fact, I've had a small bet on the Democrats to win the Senate this week, because I think it's just gone a little bit too far. Okay. For those wondering, a penalty is about 75, 80% yeah. chance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's a very, it a very apt analogy. Player um, in as well, let's it? end then with our regular section put your mouth where your money is. Uh, of course, you did kind of tip quite heavily. I'm sorry to bring it up, Matt, that Lula victory. I mean, you could still, of course, be right. Um, have you had any bets on the Brazilian election in the last week? Anything you'd like to tell us about? I'm all mixed out. I can't really, I just cannot have any more money on Lula. Even when he got to sort of 1.7, 1.8 last week, I just can't afford to risk any more money on this one. So um, I'm sitting that one out in terms of having any more bets on it. As I said, I did back the Democrats to win the Senate, just because I think the odds have gone a little bit too far. And whilst I haven't bet in places, what like, were your what were the odds that you got for the Senate race? Forty um, percent Democrats win, um, and I haven't had any, many bets in any of the individual races. But if um, the Republicans get stronger in places like Pennsylvania or Georgia, Georgia's more or less a toss-up now. I am going to be quite tempted about Dems there as well. Okay, how about you, Patrick? Yeah, quite similar to Matthew, actually. I didn't want to put any more any more money into the Brazilian market. Um, I've actually cashed out a little bit on buyer backing Bolsonaro. Um, but yeah, also, as, as Matthew tipped earlier, I cashed out of a 2023 election um, by laying that after after that came in, after Sunak got elected. Um, but not much more from me this week. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there then. Thank you very much to Matt Singh from Number Cruncher Politics for joining us. Thanks, of course, as ever to Patrick Flynn and Matthew Shaddock. We'll be back next week. If you are watching on YouTube, do give us a like and subscribe to the channel. And if you're watching on any other platform, please subscribe and follow. See you next week.